0: Welcome to season number six of the Get Your Money Right podcast, the podcast where not only do we want you to get your money, we want you to get your money right. This show is designed specifically for ambitious moms, dads, husbands, and wives to help you get money out of the way so you can live life on your own terms. And if you're finally ready to transform the way you do money, head over and grab one of our free resources at yourmoneyright.com. Again, that's yourmoneyright.com. What's the good news, people? Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Get Your Money Right podcast, the podcast where we talk about money like it's everybody's business. Because I truly believe if we're not good with money, it's because we don't talk about money, and this show is designed to change just that. I am your host, The Money Misfit, Jamar DuPaz. This is episode number 84. And today we're wrapping up our Black History Month series with something that's quite special. Today we're talking to the author of the brand new book, Black Fortunes. The story of the first six African Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. So this is one of those episodes you want to pay attention to, especially if you're looking for inspiration. You're looking for some... Interesting stories and some insights on how you could do the same thing. This is the episode for you. If this is the first time tuning in, or I should say your first time tuning in, I like to say welcome. Welcome. Thanks for being here. I don't know how you found me, but I appreciate you being here. This is a different type of personal finance podcast. We talk about money as it relates to real life for real people to utilize real money to get real results for the life you really want to live. Right. And if you want to find out more about what we do, and how we do it, head over to our website at yourmoneyright.com. Again, that's yourmoneyright.com. There you can subscribe to get my best stuff that I have. Also, all the past episodes are there along with the show notes and all that good stuff. And even consider come joining us in our Money Misfits, money Misfits Facebook group where we continue on with the discussion and talk about money. Right. So that's what we're about today. So today is a special treat. Like I said, we have the author of the book, Black Fortunes, Mr. Shamari Wills. And this gentleman is was a pleasure to talk to. Uh, It was inspiring to hear about uh, his family, uh, his ancestry, his direct lineage that actually makes it into this book, which is pretty cool. His insights on information that we thought we knew. You know, if you were one of those people who thought Madam C.J. Walker is one of the first or was the first black uh, woman to become a millionaire, you're in for a treat. There is some scandal behind that story that he shares with us today. He talks about his journey from understanding when it was time for him to write the book and what he did to actually get the book out, who he talked to, what connections he made. We talk about that because, you know, I'm going to ask those type of questions for you, especially for my inspiring, aspiring authors that are listening to this uh, episode we, we go in depth on this, this is some really interesting stuff uh, in this book. And I say this a few times during the during the interview, but it's one of those books you want to be able to pick up. So I will put all the links to everything we mentioned in the show notes, the links to the book, the links to the resources, websites and all that good stuff in the show notes where you can find it. Yourmoneyright.com forward slash 84. That's the number eight and the number four. Yourmoneyright.com forward slash 84. And so this is a really good interview. It's in depth. Uh, it's uh, it's it's thorough. And I think you're going to like it. Uh, so plug your ears, get ready to listen and enjoy our interview with Mr. Shamari Wills. All right, Misfits, welcome to the show. The author of this amazing book, Black Fortunes, Mr. Shamari Wills. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Wills. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Jamar. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be on the podcast.
0: Man, it is my pleasure. I have said this on video before, but we are doing Black History Month and I was researching. Previous episodes we did, a couple of episodes ago, talked about how slaves were able to actually buy their own freedom and how that actually worked. The next level of that was how did they become free and then how do we get those first millionaires? And as I'm doing the research, I run up on your book and I realize, man, you didn't already did the research. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into this book, before we start talking about it, we want to know who you are. You know, tell us a little bit where you're from, Tell us you got family, you're married, you got any kids. Let let everybody know where you're from, because I believe that uh, not only is writing this book make you successful, but I believe that there's always a backstory behind that. There's a support group behind people who are able to do things like that. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and, and your family life and all that good stuff.
1: Well, yeah, I'm, I'm from Washington, D.C. I was born in D.C., uh, but my family's from Atlanta. Uh, you know, I have three brothers and a sister. I was my my uh, parents' first child, born in Washington D.C. Because my family's originally from Philadelphia. And sort of the backstory behind that is that my mother's side, in particular, kind of has a um, tradition of, you know, a lot of things, but entrepreneurship and business ownership. And my great great uncle, his name is John Drew. He was one of the first black millionaires. Uh, in the history of philadelphia so that was always in the family line Uncle johnny rich Uncle johnny uh you know the stories were, were bandied about you know a lot so you know now I, you know i live in new york city i live in brooklyn um these days i'm a journalist I uh, did a stint did three years at cnn and two years at abc which is when i'm coming off most recently i'm in taking a little a couple months off to uh work on the book but yeah I'm married you know i, I have a i have a two-year-old daughter <laughs> which is which is you know uh it uh, uh, feels like another job unto itself so uh yes, yeah, so yeah you know that's that's <laughs> sort of my backstory
0: that's awesome that's awesome so you got it did you always want to be a journalist what led you into that into that arena
1: well, you know, I haven't really told this story I don't think to anybody but you know so i i i um worked on the Obama campaign in 2008 you know and you know it it was is inspiring you know it it is inspiring you know it's just an incredible time you know uh you know I came off that and you know I felt like I wanted to you know work in government um you know having grown up in washington d c and you know, just how inspiring his run was, um, you know, so I, I worked, uh, you know, in, in government in D.C. I worked for actual local government, not not the federal government. But, you know, I just, you know, f- figured out that wasn't for me, you know, because you know, the bureaucracy is <laughs> that's the <laughs> re- re- reality yeah. when you're dealing with government. Yeah. Um, so I, I decided I wanted to go a little bit more directly at things. And, you know, that's when I became a journalist. Moved to New York City. I started working for the uh, Caribbean newspaper in New York City. It's called the New York Carib News, which kind of services the entire, you know, Caribbean diaspora and the New York metro area. While I was there, I started the part time journalism program at Columbia University. I completed that. Um, And while I was doing that, I started working on this book. And, you know, I've been working on it for almost almost the last four years, you know, graduated, went to CNN, then went to Good Morning America. And I was working on the book the entire time. You know, so that's kind of my journey uh, as a, as a journalist.
0: That's awesome. Awesome. And again, the book is called Black Fortunes, the story of the first six African-Americans who escaped slavery and became millionaires. And as you touched on it already, you talked about you had a great, great, Is it third great or great great uncle? Yes, John Drew. Two two greats. Uh, I get confused sometimes (laughs) too. Yeah, he's back there somewhere, right? Uh, Or up there, I should say. Uh, And he, if I remember correctly, he made his money in the stock market, right? And recognized the bubble and made it happen. Tell us about tell us about what you've heard from about Uncle Uncle Johnny.
1: Yeah, Uncle Johnny, um, you know, he's, you know, it's just he was, I don't know, he's intuitive or, you know, he's a genius. I don't know what it was. But anyway, his uh, father, Napoleon Bonaparte, Drew, who's my hero, you know, in life is just, you know, I just, that's who I aspire to be. Like, he was born a slave in Powhatan, Virginia. Uh, I got free after the Civil War and became the first black man in the county to own uh, property. Uh, he sold the property when he got a little older, didn't want to farm anymore and gave the money to his sons, uh, John drew and my, my great, great grandfather, Simon drew. They went, both went into business. Uh, my great, great grandfather went into restaurants and real estate and John drew, he started this bus line, uh, to help the black folks in the Philly suburbs get to work in the city. Um, he took the profits from the bus line in the 20s because he started the bus line in about 1919, if I'm correct, if I remember the dates right. But he started taking that money in the early 20s and putting it into the stock market, which he was not able to trade in directly because he was black. So he had to kind of have a white broker. Um, but he just invested in the stock market. I guess he picked his stocks well. Um and, you know, the market in the 20s, of course, towards the end of the decade, went up and up and up and up. 1929, he pulls his money out um, right before the crash and walked away with, um, you know, almost a million dollars. You know, so. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> I don't know how he knew it. You know, he died. You know, he, he actually lived a really, really long time. He he you know, he died. uh I think he died in the 70s. Yeah, I was born in the 80s, um, so you know I just missed getting to 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 meet him. But you know, he's just an incredible guy.
0: Sounds like uh, he had he would have some amazing stories to share. Oh yeah, somebody I would I'd love to sit down and uh and talk with. Oh, but you said your 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 hero, the guy you aspire to be like, was his dad. Tell us about tell us about that. Like, what what about him that makes you like okay, this is who I want to be.
1: You know, I think the thing about Napoleon, uh, number one, is it just, you know, he was enslaved, you know, and, you know, the slave plantation, you know, you can, you know, you can look it up, um, you know, to this day in, in Powhatan, the name of it escapes me. Um, but it's a—it's—it's so it's you can go visit there now. It's like a tourist attraction. I don't know why I can't recall the name, but anyway, it was just horrible. It was owned by this uh, general in the Confederate army. It's just a horrible guy. Uh, You know, he survived that, you know, and, you know, instead of letting every all the horrific things he experienced in his life get him down. uh, You know, he walked off that plantation and built something for his family. And, you know, what Napoleon did uh, it changed my, it changed my family tree. You know, I mean, it just set things in motion, uh, all the way to now, you know, he, he was born in the, um, in the 1840s, you know, and, it, you know, t- today in 2018, he just set things in motion, uh, to bring opportunities, you know, cause he set up his sons, his sons, they looked out for their kids and they looked out for their kids and, You know, my mother, you know, always looked out for for me and for her, all of her kids. So um, just the sacrifice he made for his family. And, you know, what, what gets to me in particular about him is he had this accomplishment. He was the first black man in Powhatan to own property. And, you know, he sacrificed that for his kids. You know, he said, you know what, take this land, sell it. And you take the money and you do something. You know, a lot of people wait until they die. Yeah. you know, to leave something for their kids. Yeah. Right? But he was still alive and, you know, he sold off most of what he owned. They give his kids a start. So, you know, I just he 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 inspires me. I you know, I, I, I try to try to try to be like him and look up to him.
0: That's outstanding because we do we do hear that a lot. We hear Well, a lot of black folks just really just trying to have something at the end of life to leave at all. But right. But to be able to you know sell his assets or even have assets to be able to to liquidate and get his kids started right there that that takes vision uh especially when you're thinking about where he's coming from so yeah that is outstanding so do you think and i think you know you alluded to it already how do you think that's affected you how do you think you've benefited from that decision that he made so long ago
1: well yeah so i mean i'm the descendant of his eldest son, Simon, who, you know, was a really successful in business. But he wasn't a millionaire like his brother, the f- famous John Drew. Uh, he had an oyster bar, um, you know, where, you know, ice boxes having some refrigeration, you know, in the, at the turn of the century was a big deal. So he had cold beer oysters and ice cream and, and, you know, everybody loved to go there for his parties. But, you know, basically he had this, he had, you know, um, you know, these local businesses, he owned a lot of real estate too. He had one child, his child was Mabel Court Drew, who was my great, great grandmother. Right, and mm-hmm. uh, just, I just get in, get grapes, right? I should get it get the grace. Right, always <laughs> got, kind of snags me. But anyway, he um left all of that uh to his daughter. He didn't have a son. I mean, he he had sons, but they didn't you know live to adulthood. Um, but he left it to his daughter, and um you know as a black woman, as a woman, you know just to have assets, really you know um you know put her you know on a different on a different, um, on a different trajectory. Um, it allowed her to pursue education. Um, you know, she went to college, she went to, um, you know, graduate school, became a teacher, um, and, you know, just allowed her to pursue education, um, allowed all of her kids to pursue education and, you know, to kind of circle back to Napoleon, um, you know, and, you know, this is something that really touched me when I found it. You know, I looked at the census records for him. He was illiterate, right? You know, mm. and a lot of people wouldn't want to say that. I would be like, you know, some people in my family are, you know, embarrassed by that. But I mean, I'm actually inspired by that to think about the fact that he, you know, could not read and write by no fault of his own because he was enslaved and has, had his rights taken away from him. Still built this incredible legacy. But the great thing is that, um, From his sons on, from Simon and and, uh, and, uh, John on, all of their descendants on, till now, every single one has gone to college. Uh, Most went on to college and got master's degrees. Um, You know, all sorts of great places. Howard, I went to Morehouse. Um, My mother went to Spelman. My grandmother went to Harvard. Um, You know, it's just, you know, just the, the, the opportunities that he opened, that were opened up. Uh, because of what he did, you know, for people to gain education and to, in turn, uh, you know, give, give back, uh, was a big deal. My grandmother, who I mentioned went to Harvard. Uh, she was a principal in, uh, the Philadelphia area of a couple schools. And, you know, one of the things that were, this is really cool about her life is she, uh, two of her disciples were Patty, not disciples, I should say students, that um, she was able to mentor were Sherman Hemsley and Patty Labelle in the Philadelphia area. Really? You know, so it's kinda cool that, you know, she was able to get give back and help them along, you know, and they, you know, all contributed and they contributed to um, you know, the culture contributed in, you know, their own ways. So it just opened the door for folks to have richer lives and in turn, you know, make a a, a bigger contribution, you know, so I, it's the big, big impact.
0: That's uh, that's awesome. And I, and I want to ask you, as, we, as we're still kind of early in this conversation, you know, we talking about decisions he'd made and I'm sitting here and I'm looking at this book and I'm thinking I'm looking at you. We're having this conversation. I'm looking at this book, which is really well done, by the way. It's a beautiful book. Oh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, which if you, you of course you're listening, but get the hard get the heart up. This is one of those books you want to put on your bookshelf. And leave to your children. Right. Like it's because it's these are stories that we got to hear more of. Um And I'm wondering if uh, Shamar is going to do a sequel to this. <laughs> I know he, I hadn't told him I was going to do this. But I was wondering if he's going to do a sequel to this to follow up with these families to see if we know what his, these lineage lineages are doing today. Uh But anyway, um back to Napoleon, a decision he made and an effect on your life. Do you think. Uh, you would have the audacity to write such a book if he did not make that decision. And if the these values hadn't been passed down to your family,
1: you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, you know, because I think there's something genetic, you know, because there was just just, you know, just to be so daring to be so, so audacious. I mean, they were known him and his sons we used to say they were arrogant because they were just so cocky. Mm-hmm. You know, these these black man and his sons that came out of slavery and they just had no limits in terms of what they thought they could do. So I think, yeah. you know, I, I hope that I got a little bit of courage from them. But uh, more so than that, just the foundation that was set in terms of education, um, you know, that they, they were able to, uh, you, you know, fund for their descendants. Um, you know, I think it was was big you know just 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 for me um especially you know my mother you know she's such a, a brilliant woman such a well educated woman you know be, being raised by teachers her mother was a teacher her grandmother was a teacher uh and you know she taught me uh she you know reading and writing and speaking well were always a huge huge thing for her so you know just to have the confidence to you know try to write a book try to uh you know go into the field of communication you know it, it all kind of all came from that you know
0: yeah that's awesome so t- talk to us about the process the book the book process in itself right so uh there's as- aspiring off- uh, authors out there listening to this or people who have a book in them heck i'm thinking about writing uh, several books uh <laughs> you know how did you get hooked up you know with harper collins and amistad and and who even told you so hey you know, who who gave you permission to even start moving out? I know you said some of it is genetic, but how did you start moving in this direction and make these connections?
1: Well, so when I was at Columbia, you know, I, I have to say this um, there's two, two, two professors at Columbia, just incredible journalists. Uh, you know, my wife, uh, I met her in Atlanta just after I graduated from Morehouse College. And, you know, she's in public health. But when I remember on one of our first dates, she said, "You got to read this book by this guy called Howard French about Africa. It's called Africa: A Continent for the Taking." You know, and it was like maybe our second or third date, and you know, of course, you know, I read the book, you know, um, and it's just this incredible book, and I just became like a huge fan of Howard French. Got to Columbia and who's a professor there, but you know, Howard French. You know, so I really wanted to meet him and get to know him, you know, the time in the time I was there, you know, and we never could hook up because he was always traveling or, you know, his classes weren't available. So I ended up taking they have a book writing seminar at Columbia. I took that, you know, it's they've published something like 60 books came out of the seminar and it's run by Samuel Friedman. He's a New York Times veteran. He's just an incredible journalist and uh, took that class and, you know, developed a book proposal there Uh, And after I finished it, like, you know, just by coincidence, I happened to bump into Howard French um, in the hallways at Columbia. I've been looking for him for the entire time I was there. I finally saw him for the first time and I started talking to him about my book. We met, talked to him, you know, a lot. And him and Samuel Friedman, they actually helped me get this book to where it needed to be. Um, Sam, he's just basically taught me everything I know about book writing and Howard. He, uh, you know, helped me get the book proposal because before you have to re- you write a book, you have to write a proposal, which basically explains what the book is going to be about in an essay, basically in a very, very, very long essay. And then has a sample chapter, chapter attached to it. Uh, Sam helped me get that where it needed to be. And then Howard, you know, helped me, uh, you know, with the details and he actually introduced me to his agent gloria loomis uh who ended up signing me and representing me uh and you know gloria is just incredible i mean she's been in the business for like 40 years she's just a just an incredible incredible uh literary agent and you know she sent out the book proposal and you know i haven't told 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 anybody this before but the only uh folks who were like yeah we want to do this you know we're harper you know um You know, um, and, you know, I met the editor at HarperCollins. I ended up doing this with um, Tracy Sherrod, uh, you know, shortly after that. You know, she wanted to meet me, get to know me. And, you know, she invited me to this party, like a super fancy party, the fanciest party I've ever been (laughs) been to in my life. It was (laughs) it's called the Studio Museum Gala. I mean, if you can believe it, this is twenty five thousand dollar. (laughs) <laughs> plate, you know, <laughs> thing, and she she was just like, ah, oh, you know, just come real casual and it's crazy. Like Nicole Murphy was there, and you know, just all these crazy people were there. Tracy Ellis Ross was there, and it was just this crazy party. And we just sat and we talked about the book, and you know, I got to know Tracy, you know, and she's just, you know, you know, has an incredible track record. You know, she's done incredible work as an editor, and she's just a really really sweet person and one of the only african-american editors and you know big publishing i should say uh and you know so we did the book you know and you know here it is but i mean just the nuts and bolts of it for people who want to write a book um you know i think it starts with being a voracious reader you know because i think you know as you develop your own voice and your own writing style you kind of have to know what you like you know and you you kind of get to know that by reading other people. Um, And then, you know, um, writing a really, really good book proposal, um, which there's books out there how to do it. Obviously, I learned at this class at Columbia, but I mean, there's tons of books out there on how to write book proposals. Um, Writing a really, really good book proposal. um, And, you know, that's the biggest thing because your book proposal is what gets you your agent um, and your agent is what gets you your book deal. Um, but it all starts with a really, really good book proposal. So, you know, that's kind of the magic, uh, magic key, you know, to, to make book a cap happen, a good proposal. Yeah.
0: I, I tell people all the time, we talk about it on, on the show. It's, it's all about marketing. Right. Right. It's this right. commu- It's communication. Right. It's marketing is de- delivering what, the people want to hear. Right. Right. right? Exactly. So <laughs> they want it. They, there's something they're li- they're looking for. Mm-hmm. If you can sh- give them what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep it relevant. And, uh, you know, utilize your, your talent, and skills. And you're a perfect example of this. You know, here you are. You, you're you working with CNN and you're, you're having these jobs, but you've, you've had this book in you for, you know, for. Somebody could argue from birth. Right. (laughs) But you've had this book in you for years. You've been working on it. Uh, You you, at Columbia, you're you have people that you look up to you admire. You have a vision of kind of where where you want to go. Right. Or or what you want to do or who you want to be like. And you're like, look, I need to find this person. So you had a vision. Uh, The stars lined up. You found that person. Uh, You've been working on your craft. You've been a voracious reader. You're making these connections. Apparently, people like you, right? <laughs> because I've I've met some people who are pretty talented, and they're just bad people. Like nobody likes them, so their talent never gets out, right? So you've had some people skills, right? You've been able to shake a hand, smile at people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know you, but I can imagine that's you know that's a, that's a skill uh, that you've acquired, and and here you are, and now we have got this beautiful book that's put out, and I got a feeling. You're going to be at a lot of twenty five thousand dollar plate uh, galas and dinners and fundraisers and, and rubbing shoulders with a lot of people, because I think this is one of those books that will catch fire. And if it doesn't, it should.
1: <laughs> right? well, well, I appreciate that, Jamar. Let's, let's hope.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, um, I was telling you this before. And just so everybody else knows, I'm, uh, I just got this book. Right. Um, and it came in same day and I'm, I'm sitting here trying to I'm trying to skim through it right so I can get prepared for this interview and it was the most difficult thing that I ever had to do because it caught my attention every time I kept trying to skim like it wouldn't let me just you know (laughs) read the bold print and move on you know your writing style draws you in and makes you really want to hear about these people and and there's one thing that you wrote in here that is so relevant and I thought it was so real written it's something that I've you know of course that I and because we know we talk about money on this show and, and very other many other people have talked about. And I'm going to read uh, just a couple of paragraphs. And you talk about the creation of black wealth is an important but overlooked subject in the economic and social history of the United States. African-Americans were treated as property during slavery and were stripped of their economic and social personhood. Reduced the commodities to be controlled, managed, bought, sold, underwritten, and leveraged. Attaining economic independence and power was a revolutionary act. Read that last sentence again. Attaining economic independence and power was a revolutionary act. And I almost feel like that is the same (laughs) deal today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Elaborate on that for
1: us. Well, you know... I mean, so slavery and all forms of, you know, oppression um, are, you know, just, you know, incredible human atrocities, you know, which we we know, you know, from a suffering perspective and a spiritual perspective and a psychological perspective, what they do. Um, But a lesser aspect, known aspect of, you know, uh, slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, employment discrimination uh you know wealth disparities is that it's an economic problem too it's an it's an economic crime too you know abraham lincoln um he said the reason he couldn't stand for slavery in addition to all the horrible things is that it was theft of another man's wages and you know for african americans in this country um In addition to having our, you know, civil rights um, and our freedom, you know, always being, you know, picked at and taken away, we've had to deal with, you know, economic oppression. You know, we've had to deal with a lack of freedom, a lack of wages, our property and our neighborhoods being devalued, uh, you know, lower wages for the same work not having access to good jobs, not being able to invest in the stock market, you know, not being able to work at certain places. And this is devastating psychologically, but it's also devastating economically when you don't have the money. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we don't think about the economic component of racism. We don't think about the economic component of these of these structures. And so, the way I see it, when you go against that, that's powerful, right? When you say, I'm not going to let you strip away my economic power, you know, that's revolutionary. Now, I mean, you can take that and you can waste it on something, you know, that's not really worthwhile. But still, just to have that power, you know, as an African-American to have financial power, economic power is, is you know, it's just important. It's huge.
0: Yeah. And of course you know, you know I agree with that, right? We <laughs>
1: Of course. Yeah. Uh, I've, yeah I've, of course. I've
0: talked, you know, this whole podcast is based on that, right? The based on the fact that, you know, there is no independence without financial independence, right? Let's and it starts with the dollar. It starts with uh, you know, knowing where every dollar goes and being mindful of it and uh moving moving forward and telling it what to do, right? Almost in a sense that mm-hmm. now your money becomes your own servant. And uh, it's amazing, which and we talk about how some of these same struggles are going on today, uh, but Mm -hmm. multiply that by a thousand. Right. If if you could if you could do that with these six characters that you talk about in this book. And so I want to get back to that and and talk about who was the gentleman uh, who was the (laughs) was the, the the slick talker. I remember you were telling a story about how he they came a whole lynch mob came to his house and mm-hmm. he had that escape out the back door. Let's, let's talk about
1: Jeremiah about Hamilton. That yep. Jere-
0: yep. That's it. Jeremiah Hamilton. One of my favorite one of my favorites out of this book. Tell us a little bit about him.
1: So, you know, slick Talker is an understatement. You know, they used <laughs> to call him. He was a black uh, investor, black Wall Street broker um, in, you know, the 1840s, 1850s and 1860s, he was, he was aggressive, you know, he was a very aggressive investor, um, you know, and, and, you know, and people didn't like that. He was a cutthroat investor. That's probably a better word, but he, you know, he made money. Um, and, you know, he, Uh, You know, was very successful, you know, investing in, you know, commodities, um, you know, as well as securities and real estate, you know, as a broker and, you know, became very wealthy. And he had this brownstone in downtown New York. Um, He's married to a white woman, a younger white woman. Um, This is in the 1850s and 1860s, mind you. Not the 1950s and 1960s, 1850s and 1860s when slavery was still going on. Um, and he's lived in a brownstone, he wore expensive clothes, and you know he had a wig of just flowing straight black hair, you know because that was, <laughs> was just that's his style <laughs> you know that's 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 how he got down um but anyway, so fast forward uh to the civil war um and during the Civil War, the union they needed troops, so they had a draft right and in New York City in particular, you had a lot of uh, recently arrived Irish immigrants uh, living in New York City who got drafted, you know, to fight in the army, and they're like, "Wait, I just got to America, and I gotta go fight for these black people." You know, they weren't, right. you know, they weren't into it, right? And so they they went crazy, right? They flipped their lid. A lot of them, and you know, they started rioting. Uh, they, you know, burned down government buildings. They started attacking black people crucifying them, lynching them, killing them. I mean, it was just, it was, it was bloody and it was brutal. And so Jeremiah Hamilton, as this rich black Wall Street investor, the only black broker on Wall Street, um, you know, was probably the most famous black man in New York at the same, at that time. Or, you know, one of, there's maybe another, maybe the top three, definitely. Um, And so the lynch mob, they said, we got to go to, if we're going to, you know, be acting a fool and attacking black people we have to take out the top one of course so you know they marched on his house as a lynch mob and they were going to lynch him and hang him from the lamppost outside his house uh this was not the smartest mob in the world as they were marching towards his house they started chanting out his house number you know so he could hear them coming his house number was 68 they were chanting 68 68 68 And so he hears this, uh, he's in the house with his wife and he hears his mom coming. He knows what they plan to do to him, obviously. Or you would think that he knew as a black man, what they were going to do to him when they found him. And, you know, so he just went out the back door of his house and he bolted, you know, and the mob came and they looted his house. You know, they kind of kept his wife hostage for like a couple of hours. And then they left after they had taken everything and smashed everything they could. um, But, yeah, that was just his his story. And, you know, after emancipation, he kept going. He kept investing, uh, you know, became a millionaire, didn't 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 let it stop him. Uh, You know, so he was a fearless. He was a fearless brother. I I, got to tell you that
0: yeah obviously uh and it's funny because you know as I, I was doing a little bit of research like i said before and I, I ran into him and i thought the the guy was just fascinating like he was beating these cats at their own game and they couldn't stand it yeah they right they yeah. just like look yeah <laughs> yeah it's like this old this this negro has got to go right mm-hmm. uh and that is uh that to me that's funny right it's gonna upset some people mm-hmm. but it, it's mm-hmm. funny yeah
1: it is <laughs> it, it is it
0: is <laughs> Uh, and then so um, the next one I want to talk about and we're not going to touch on it because y'all, y'all got to get this book because these stories, like I said, they pull you in and you the way Shamari writes this, you really feel like you're you're almost like you're watching a movie. Right. You're like you're in it. And it it almost feels like it's, you know, it's a it's it's a fiction piece. Right. <laughs> and these are these are these are real people. And so uh, kudos to you again, of uh, your writing style in this book. But uh, one of my favorite lessons, I actually learned this a while ago, but then to hear that a black woman actually uh, benefited from this, became one of the very first black millionaires, is they talked about the gold rush. Mm-hmm. Right. And the people who made the money during the gold rush, wasn't the people that found the gold, but the people that did what, what Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant did. So t- tell us a little bit about her.
1: So Miss Mary Ellen Pleasant, uh, she was a free black woman uh, from Massachusetts because, you know, they didn't have it's a free state. Um, She was uh, she grew up in Massachusetts in the 18, uh, 1830s um, and 1840s. And, you know, basically when the gold rush began, um, she went to California, you know, to join in. Um, the gold rush. This is the 1849 gold rush, the 49ers, um, which was in, it was remarkable that she went out there because it was like a month long trip on, on the boat. You know, the Panama there was no Panama Canal. So, you had it was super, super long journey. Um, people died on the trips all the time and there were no women out there and there were no black people out there. And so she went out there by herself as a, as a black woman. Right. So once she got to the gold rush, you know, she didn't head for the hills, obviously, to go mine for gold like a lot of other folks did. She just got into a little bit of, you know, uh, everything. The the first thing she got into was money lending. Um, So, you know, the the miners, you know, the miners, they kind of had this boom and bust lifestyle. You go in the hills, you get some gold, you would come in you would spend up all your money on, you know, you know, You know, uh, you know, alcohol, and you know, say entertainment. You know, I keep it PG, um, (laughs) and you know, diamonds and gold watches. Um, And you were broke, right? And you had to head back up in the mountains. But in the meantime, you needed some money to tide you over, right? And who would step in with the money? It was Mary Ellen Pleasant. She got a large inheritance from her husband in Massachusetts who died. Before she left, so she lent money and she lent it um, at a really, really high interest rate. I think she charged 10% interest per month, which is really, really, really high. So she was always lending money to these uh, 49ers, to these, uh, these gold miners. Uh, That's her first business. And then she also started laundries, uh, you know, because it's out in the west, people of course needed their clothes clean. And she started boarding houses. And then she also did some investing in uh, silver, you know, so she was just really kind of keeping her eyes open for what the money making opportunities were in San Francisco during the gold rush. And, you know, she went after them. (laughs) That
0: is outstanding. I can't even imagine, you know, being in that time period. And, uh, you know, she she had a couple of things wasn't she she was a light skinned sister, too. Right. So she could she had a she had a little bit, but everybody knew. This wasn't a white woman, right? So not only is she's of African descent, but she's also a woman, right? So women, you know, a black woman at that at the time, you know, we we think we having some racial inequality and gender inequality today, right? It that was real bad back then. So to 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 see her go out there and have this boldness, and and you know not get caught up in the gold rush, but supply the gold rushers with what they were needing, what their vices were. To me, it's ingenious, right? It is just uh, ingenious. And, and maybe she learned it from, from her husband who left her a bunch of that money. But it, it sounds like she did the right thing and, and doubled and, and tripled that money and became one of the first black millionaires. So kudos to her. Uh, the next one I want to talk about is uh, Mr. O.W. Uh, is it Gurley from the uh, the Gurley? Gurley. Gir- yeah. yep. Gurley that created uh, Black Wall Street. A lot of people don't know anything about Black Wall Street surprisingly but tell us a little bit about black wall street and how how he came uh how he came to creating this place
1: well so you know black wall street rose out of another boom another rush not the gold rush this was an oil boom in tulsa right at the turn of the century i think oil was discovered yeah i might be messing up my dates here because i have my notes but 1901 1902 Massive oil deposit was discovered in Tulsa and just basically everybody rushed to Tulsa and they build a town there overnight. Um, so as this town was kind of being put together overnight, there's a huge need for jobs. And, you know, black people started moving there. O.W. Gurley lived not too far from Tulsa in this town called Perry. And he saw this and he said, you know, I need to go to Tulsa and I need to develop a black town near tulsa and so that's what he did tulsa um was um bisected it was a, by a set of train tracks it was a set of train tracks that ran through it and you know the south side of the train tracks that's where you know the town was being built where all the white folks were and the north side of the trans- train tracks was abandoned And he, along with, uh, you know, another another uh, black industrialist, they built a town on the north side of the tracks for black folks. And, you know, they called this town Greenwood. And so the town grew and grew and grew and black people flocked there from all over the country. They were trying to get get away from lynching and, you know, Jim Crow and all the horrible stuff that was happening to black folks, especially in the south. And they came to Greenwood because there were lots of jobs in Tulsa because of the oil boom. Um, and because you know you could come to this independent black town, and Greenwood was so independent that they said the dollar would circulate twenty six times within that black community before it left. Wow, um, they had all sorts of businesses, you know, from nightclubs and movie theaters to doctors and lawyers' offices. Everybody was there. It was just a you know self sufficient black town you know uh Booker T. Washington visited he gave it the name Negro Wall Street or Black Wall Street. So that's how it came to be known as uh, Black Wall Street. And O.W. Gurley, he was the man that kind of got it started. Uh, He owned the majority of the property and Greenwood developed the majority of the property. You know, and it's just it's just just a phenomenal just a phenomenal, um, you know, feat for him to have accomplished.
0: Man, I think we can have a whole show just on this (laughs) <laughs> that part alone, but I'm going to I'm going to uh, resist that temptation and, and keep moving because there's there's one uh, misconception that you kind of cleared up here in this book about uh, uh, a, a lady who uh, is if you know anything about kind of like black history, if you've learned about the millionaires, the first millionaires, uh, Madam C.J. Walker name pops up quite a bit, right? Uh, But she wasn't actually the first black millionaire. In fact, she wasn't even the first black woman to even start creating this hair care stuff. Right. Tell us about her relationship with uh, uh, and with Miss Annie uh, Malone.
1: Yeah. You know, I got to be honest with you that that it's a little bit more (laughs) scandalous than people think, you (laughs) know, Um, you know. So basically, Annie Malone is the mother of black hair care. Um, she invented, you know, some of the early black hair care products specifically, she had this product called the wonderful hair grower. And basically what this was, this was a balm that helped heal burns on the scalp because basically right after slavery, black women were trying to straighten their hair. Um, and you know, they were, they had these chemical straighteners. A lot of them were lye soaps that would just, you know, really badly burn your scalp, so you use these things a couple of times, your hair would get straightened, but your scalp would get burned and your hair would fall out and you'd be bald um, is really, really bad. And so she created something, a balm that could heal those to heal those burns. So your hair could eventually go back, grow back. And then once it started growing back, you know, she had shampoos and all sorts of different products to help you deal with your hair, uh, specifically for African-American women. And, you know, so she built this company over time. She started it in Pieria, Illinois in the 1880s um, and, you know, built it from her literally from, you know, her kitchen sink, her sister's kitchen sink. Rather, she lived with her sister as a child because she was an orphan. Um, and but she built it up to a big company and built a headquarters in St. Louis. In St. Louis, she met this young woman. Her name was Sarah Breedlove. And she was a laundress. You know, she was very poor. You know, she was kind of working for subsistence wages as a a laundress, you know, gave her a job as a sales representative for her company. After a little while, this woman named Sarah Breedlove, she moved to Colorado and she says to Annie Malone, hey, let me go sell your products down in Colorado because you don't have anybody selling them down there. When she gets to um, uh, Colorado, her and her husband, whose name was C.J. Walker, um, decide to just use basically Annie's formulas and start their own company. And of course, you know, this guy, her boyfriend, C.J. Walker, they got married and she became Madam C.J. Walker and started the Madam C.J. Walker brand, basically selling replica formulas of Annie Malone's products and she sold the wonderful hair grower. And you know, so you know her hair business it, was, it wasn't it wasn't really a super super big hair business which which she was really good at she made herself a celebrity because she developed a relationship with the black press. She really knew how to publicize all of her business accomplishments. Um, You know, shopping expeditions, donations to charity. And just to give you an idea, the Madam C.J. Walker company, it was, you know, this was a six figure company. Right. This was a company that did, you know, you know, while Madam, Madam C.J. Walker was alive, anywhere from, you know, 90,000 to 200,000 dollars a year in business. Annie Malone's company was a million dollar company, multi-million dollar company. They were doing upwards of one and two million dollars a year in business. So they, it wasn't really that big by comparison. But C.J. Walker just had this incredible relationship with the black, black press. And she like really liked to spend money. You know, she brought, bought, bought a lot of fancy stuff. So it was like, hold on, wait a minute. Look at this. She's got to be the richest black woman in America, right? She's always she's got, you know. You know, fancy cars, and she's got, you know, a brownstone in Harlem, and she's got another house over here, and, you know, she's, her house is well decorated, but, you know, she was really, she battled with, you know, she used a lot of debt, you know, to sort of finance her lifestyle. So she battled with that her entire life, you know, and she, but she, you know, that was difficult for her too, because she didn't really, you know, it was difficult for her to be perceived as though she had more money than she actually did. At one point, Booker T Washington asked her for some money to donate to the Tuskegee Institute. And, you know, she couldn't donate the amount that he thought that she would be able to. And, you know, she wrote him back and she said, you know, Booker T I've often been mistaken for a rich woman and it causes a lot of problems for me, basically, you know, um, So she was, you know, she was balling, you know, but it wasn't necessarily making millions, you know, Um, really Annie Malone was the black hair pioneer. And of course, the other folks that we talked about, uh, you know, Mary Ellen Pleasant and others even predated them. So she wasn't the first. Annie Malone is a person who kind of did what she did before her and on a larger level uh, who we don't really talk about, you know, so. I wanted to give her give her some um, just shed some light on Annie Malone's story.
0: Yeah, that's awesome because Annie Malone is somebody that I did you know I did find out about, uh, but I didn't know uh, the size of her her wealth and the size of her company. I, I did hear uh, that, uh, she, that Madam CJ Walker learned from her, or, you know, as you told it, basically just stole from her, you know, just took the, took the formula and, uh, you know, well, actually her boyfriend did, you know, Mr. CJ Walker I should say, and, uh, and ran with it. And this is, again, this book leads so many other insight, insights and there's, there's a few other ones that, uh, I would love to talk about, but we, We'll be here all day talking about it again. This is uh, an amazing book and it's an amazing. And I'm saying that because, and I haven't even finished it yet, y'all. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I haven't even I just, like I said, I just got it and I've been tearing through it uh, and it just draws you in. Uh, and but I want to get back to you here and how we can take this information and, and relate it back to to people to modern day. And you've been working on this book for four years. You've come from a family uh, that has given you a, a good foundation, in the sense that you've you've heard these stories, right? Because we've talked about this a lot. That representation matters, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think we necessarily have a lack of resources. I think we have a lack of stories. Right. I think we have a lack of, of vision. Um, and so, with all this research, with your background, what is it? Tell us something about money that you believe today that you you know you you know that you didn't used to believe, right? What what did you learn about money that you probably that may have been a myth or maybe changed the way you look at look at it today?
1: Well, you know, I hope this isn't too technical, but I mean, I think the one thing way this book you know changed my philosophy on money is it made me appreciate the per- importance of real estate, you know, property ownership. You know, I was never really big on that. You know, I live in New York City. Everybody rents here. You know, obviously I have a history of, you know, stock in- investing. I, I, you know, I own a lot of stocks. Um, you know, that's always been my main, you know, investment. You know, and I never really saw the value in real estate. You know, I mean, I obviously, you know, that it's worth something, but I never I never was a big real estate person. Um, But then as I did this book and I kind of learned about not just the stories of these black millionaires, but of all African-Americans and how important an investment. Real estate has been traditionally for African-Americans it kind of changed 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 my mind about it you know because real estate for african americans has always been our main investment um you know because we couldn't trade in the stock market a lot of times some a lot of times until you got the black banks opening you couldn't even get a savings account um you know so real estate was has always been how we store wealth and, you know, one thing I talk about in the book is that we used to belong to the property where we worked. We belong to the plantation and the plantation owners. So just I mean, the thing about it, as a black person to be able to own your own land, you know, it's a powerful, powerful thing, you know, and I think, you know, real estate has, you know, done well, uh, you know, by African-Americans, Uh, For generations, Um, you know, owning your own property, you know, owning your own home has been, you know, a a staple of, um, you know, you know, building some generational wealth for African-Americans for 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 a really, really long time. And it's an important, important tradition, I think, Um, you know, so I just came away with a whole nother appreciation for, um, you know, just owning property, owning your own home. You know, especially for African-Americans, you know, not that I'm not saying it's the end end all be all. You know, I live in New York City. I still live in an apartment. Um, But. I just have such a deep appreciation for why that's so meaningful to us now.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, we're we're homeowners down here and um, I tell you, you look at property differently when you when you do own your home right? You, mm-hmm. you, you look at all things differently. Uh, and it's a different, it's a different perspective. And I'm glad you, you brought that up that look, you know, you, you come from a history, right? Of stock market is where it's at. And, uh, kudos to you for being open to other things. Um, on this podcast, we challenge, we typically challenge the way people, traditional financial advice is given to us. Um, the, the, I have been, you know, more than one time kind of poo-pooing on the 401k and things like that so (laughs) but uh that is outstanding that you got that vision because you know as we're listening to these stories and i'm and i'm I'm reading these stories the same thing that stood out to me like man land was and is important right it is important and because it gives you access and it it gives you uh not only just a place to be right because we look at it now just a place to be but I think I think more importantly is the mindset that you get behind home ownership or land ownership or just ownership in general there's something there uh, that changes the mind because even if you go back to your great great uncle you know uh, the mindset that he put in the, to, to, to everybody, right. Was the, th- was the key because I think I remember you reading in there. He even, he died without a will. So it wasn't even like, it, I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong. It wasn't even like he left a whole bunch of like fortune, right. Uh, but his legacy still moved on.
1: Yeah. I mean, so the story with John is, um, you know, it's interesting, right. You know, I mean, I think about that. A lot, you know. He died suddenly without a will. Um, you know, I don't think he, you know, you know had a had a tremendous, you know, uh, sense of his own mortality. And that, uh, you know, he, you know, he had, you know, he was a world beater. You know, so I maybe he never expected to die. But uh, yeah, so so he died without a will, and you know, then his money, you know, ended up with his uh, second wife. You know, and, you know, that money was not managed skillfully, you know, (laughs) and I'm not saying that she went in out and brought mink coats and all that stuff because she did it. But she just she didn't have the same investment skills that he had. And, you know, she kept most of the money in cash, you know, so it did not grow, you know. And then, you know, when she passed away, the money went to my mother and, you know, my aunt, you know, and I, you know, it wasn't a tremendous amount of money by then. But yeah, you know, and I, I I sometimes think about like you know it's important you know within a family that everybody you know knows about money you know because sometimes if it's the mother that manages the mo- money or the father or the uncle or whatever and you know something happens to them you know everybody is lost so you know it's it's you know I think it's really important for um for for everybody in a family uh, you know, to know about money management. Um just for you know it's just, you know, based on, you know, you know, this the story I recounted.
0: Man, you look sound like you read my manuscripts, man. That is <laughs> you know, I I tell people all the time, it's like, you know, you don't have to know everything about money. But, you know, you need to know about money, right? Uh, in in my marriage, I'm obviously the money guy, right? But mm-hmm. We make financial decisions together, and I've watched my wife grow in that understanding. You know, over the years, she went from somebody who absolutely didn't want to have anything to do with the money, right? Uh, financial, emotional, financial scars in the past, you know, uh, didn't really talk about money. I didn't talk about money coming up either. I just got tired of being broke. Mm hmm. And it's like I gotta do something different, right? Right, right. And uh, and so we we have a game plan in place. Like my wife knows if I'm if I'm gone, here's what we you know here's what we're gonna do. So I encourage everybody to to take heed to that. But even though, even even with that being said, if you just listen to the story, like even just his life, although he didn't have a will, although he didn't leave a whole lot, maybe he didn't leave marching orders, or for his wife, but the way he lived still inspires today. Right, generations after generation after generation, we used to, uh, have old preachers to say, you know, you may be the only Bible that people ever read. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, uh, representation matters. So the things that mm-hmm. you're doing today, the, the the way you're living today, Shamari writing this book today. You know, will impact so many people, even whether or not they read the book or not. Right. Like I'm now I'm fired up. I want a pretty I want a pretty book like this. I want one that looks good and goes out and 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 uh, and that's well written and all that good stuff. Right. You just buy simple act of you uh, letting your talent out, letting your goods out and, uh, and sharing it with the world, having the boldness and the audacity to do that just can move mountains and can affect change for generations after generation. And we need so much more. Of this, We need so much more of this hashtag black excellence to be on display, uh, if you know what I mean. So with that being said, uh, Mr. Wills, uh, what's what's next? What's next for you uh, with the book? Where where, where are you going with it?
1: Well, with the book, you know, we're just going to continue to try to, you know, get folks to, uh, you know, become aware of it. You know, uh, get to know the stories, Uh, you know, March. Uh, we'll, we'll be on the road, you know, I'm going to take the book on the road. We've been mostly doing, you know, sort of local, uh, book events. So we'll be in a few different cities in March. I will, um, you know, I tweet out, you know, the, 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 schedule when I have it, but we'll be in Philly, um, going to do something in Philly with, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, uh, you know, we'll be in LA, uh, Chicago, Atlanta, and I, you know, we're putting together an event in DC now, too. And, you know, I probably need to come down to Houston, too, now after talking to you. <laughs> um, yeah, but, you know, I think we're going to take it on the road. Um, you know, there's some exciting stuff with the book. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about right now, but it's 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 out there on the it, on well, the you, internet.
0: You don't have to talk about it, but I had heard, you know, through the grapevine, that uh, somebody may be picking this up for some type of television, uh, you know, some type of some on-screen type of work. So I had heard that through the grapevine. So y'all be on the lookout. He if he can't talk about it, I can talk about it. So. <laughs> And, hey, you know, I'm going to tweet about it. I'm going to write about it. I'm going you know, to let my whole tribe know about it. The Money Misfits will know about it and we will support this book. Um, uh, so congratulations on that. I by appreciate the way. that. Thank congratulations you. on that thing uh, that you can't talk about. And congratulations on a book in general. Congratulations on a wife, on on a, a baby girl. You got your two year old. You're doing your thing. I appreciate you. I mean, if, I don't know if anybody. I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, I love what you're doing. I'm glad you had the audacity to write this book, to believe in yourself, and even through all that, being a husband and and a, and a father, and you know, working. And I'd imagine you stayed up quite a few nights to get this thing out, right? right. So, <laughs> but
1: you know, my two-year-old sleeps. You know, so, I, you know, thank you to her for that. You know, so <laughs> right, that's
0: good. That's good. Uh, so, so I appreciate that. Before we close out. Anything else you want to share with with the money misfits today before we before we uh, find out where we can connect with you? And yeah,
1: all that stuff. two things. I try to keep it short. I So I talked a little bit about John, how he didn't have a will. You know, he was a millionaire. My actual great, great grandfather, Simon, his brother, he actually did. You know, he had all that stuff set up and his wife knew exactly how to manage what he had. and his, his, his daughter did. And one of the interesting, I think that was because he didn't have sons. Right. You know, John had sons. Right. So I think he assumed they would just handle things after, you know, he died, you know, which they didn't. Uh, My great great grandfather only had had a daughter, Mm. you know, so I think he felt like he needed to make sure things were set up for his wife and his daughter and that they knew about money. Um, And that ended up starting a tradition of very strong women, you know, within our family. Other thing I want to say about property ownership, just to put something out there. I don't know if people know this, but 98 percent of the acreage in the United States is owned by white Americans, Um, you know. So, I mean, that's something to think about in respect to what we were saying about property. Um, 98 percent. You know, so, yeah, you know, again, you know, I think property ownership uh, is something that, you know, is on the decline a little bit for African-Americans. So. Something we all should be thinking about, you know,
0: absolutely, absolutely. And we we will be continually talking more and more about that. We've done a few shows on mortgages and and home ownership, but we're definitely going to talk a lot more about uh, property ownership and actually how to get involved in it with uh, little money and all that good stuff. No shenanigans, no scams here. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) we're definitely going to talk a lot more about that from a real perspective. Everybody knows how I do things, how I get down. So, man, I appreciate this. Where can everybody follow you, find out where you're going to be, keep up with you, find out where do we get the book from? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so you can follow me. Everything is at showwills, S H O W I. LLS, S H O W I L L S on Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can follow me on there. Um, I'm launching a website soon. I'll tweet that out and put that on Instagram when it's ready. Um, the book, um, of course, is on Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.com. It's in um, all major bookstores. It's in most independent bookstores. If your independent bookstore doesn't have it, just tweet at me and I'll 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 make sure uh, I'll make sure that they get it uh, and they carry it. Um, Yeah. So, you know, hopefully you guys pick it up. You know, you know, I'm I'm proud of the book, but even more, I'm proud of our ancestors and our history. And, you know, I hope everybody uh, gets to know a little something about them.
0: Outstanding, outstanding. Mr. Shamar Wills, thank you so much for hanging out with me and the misfits. Again, we appreciate what you're doing. And man, just keep going. We're rooting for
1: you. I appreciate it, Jamar. This is awesome. And I appreciate you. This is the most fun I had in a while. So (laughs) I appreciate it.
0: I'm glad. All right, man. Take
1: care. Okay, you too, Jamar. See, see,
0: (laughs) I told you that was good, right? Uh, again, a big shout out to Mr. Wills for coming on and doing this uh, episode, especially on such a short notice. I had just discovered this book uh, a couple of days before we did this this interview. And he agreed to come on and do that. So, again, Mr. Wills, thank you so much for taking the time out away from your your, your wife and, and your daughter. Uh, thank them for us as well. We appreciate the knowledge you dropped here. We appreciate the effort you put into putting this book together. Uh, and uh, so, again, just thank you for that. And wasn't that good, right? If you like that, uh, head over to the show notes, yourmoneyright.com forward slash 84 and leave a comment. If you have any questions for Mr. Wills, uh, leave a comment, ask him any questions. He did say he would even consider coming and hanging out with us maybe on a Facebook live or something like that one day. So be on the lookout for that as well. Uh, And if you like it, if you felt like this was beneficial to you, if you like the show, Please don't forget, we still could benefit from uh, those reviews on iTunes, so please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I should say, and consider leaving us a five-star rating and a review. And let me know when you do that so I can be on the lookout for it and maybe even read it on the next deal. But, yeah, this was a lot of fun, and I hope you learned a lot during this episode, but it's been long enough, so I'm going to go ahead and let you go. But, again, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate you. I really do. And I love you, and God bless. And PS and PS
1: I said, We're talking about money, 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 money cash, cash, cash. I said, we're talking